0: Hello, everyone. I'm Chaitan Bhatt. I'm Director of LSE Human Rights, and I'd like to warmly welcome you to this special event hosted by LSE Human Rights to mark United Nations International Human Rights Day. And I'm very delighted that you could join us this evening. United Nations International Human Rights Day, which is on next uh, Sunday, the 10th of December, marks the day at which the UN General Assembly adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. (coughs) Some of you who've uh, kept in contact with developments with LSE Human Rights would also know that this is one of the important occasions where we are relaunching LSE Human Rights uh, under the umbrella of the Department of Sociology. And LSE Human Rights will remain the focal point for research, teaching, public engagement, a whole range of different research activities at LSE regarding human rights, but it will be expanding its its activities significantly in the department, and this includes new offerings in master's programs. Two new master's programs are being proposed, and a number of different uh, events and research projects and public engagement and impact events. So we very much hope to welcome you at the new LSE Human Rights in the near future. The theme for tonight's event is the human cost of conflict, the search for dignity and rights of Palestinian refugees, and I'm very honored indeed to welcome and introduce our speaker, Pierre Cranbull. And I hope I got the pronunciation <laughs> reasonably <very> <laughs> reasonably near. Mr. Cranbull became Commissioner General of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in 2014. And he came to that role with over two decades of humanitarian, human rights, and development work. And prior to joining UNRWA, he was uh, he worked for the International Committee of the Red Cross for over a decade as their director of operations. And there, he had responsibility for some 12,000 staff working in 80 odd countries and he directly oversaw ICRC's humanitarian responses to a wide range of conflicts, including in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria, in Colombia, and in Libya. And as part of his role, he also led senior-level negotiations with governments and armed groups to secure access to populations that were in desperate need of humanitarian assistance. In addition, he's had demanding field assignments, in various societies, I'm not going to list them all, uh, in various societies that have experienced serious armed conflict or massive social change as a result of a conflict or an ongoing and enduring conflict. Uh, And it includes countries in Latin America and in Eastern Europe. His academic background is in political science and international relations. Mr. Cranbull will speak for about 14 minutes, and there will be time afterwards for... Your questions, and uh, we do have to finish shortly before eight p m and there 's a reception afterwards to which you 're very welcome indeed now this event and the Q and A session that follows is recorded and should be available uh, as a podcast online in a few days, assuming the technology works. Can I please therefore ask you to turn your mobile phones to silent during this event? Now, if you want to comment on this event, and we strongly encourage you to, please use the Twitter hashtag LSEHRD. I ask you to extend your welcome to Mr. Pierre Cranbull
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much, uh, Chetan, for the invitation to you and to Uh, Heidi uh, Fidel-Megrisi, my personal appreciation for the opportunity to address you this uh, evening and to share some thoughts on the situation of Palestine refugees in the Near East and on the work of UNRWA. But um, before doing that, I really wanted to start by sharing a few more general thoughts and focusing on three points that I feel very strongly about after working in situations of armed conflict for the past 27 years. The first is the need to robustly reject the notion that wars are inevitable. And that might sound somewhat counterintuitive, because, of course, I've worked uh, for many years on the very foundations of international humanitarian law, which were developed, the Geneva Conventions, and I think that preceded in the development of international humanitarian law is based on the very idea that wars are indeed inevitable and that they need to be regulated in terms of behaviours of armed groups, be they governmental or non-governmental, and that their effects, the effects of wars, therefore need to be contained by intervening on how armed forces behave on the battlefield. But after working in war zones uh, for those many years, I simply cannot reconcile myself with the idea that wars are inevitable, and that is because of the enormity of the human cost of armed conflicts. And I'm struck by the fact that over the past two decades the international community in its broad sense has focused and pursued two types of strategies in response to situations of armed conflict and war that we see uh, in the world. One strategy that the international community has pursued is military interventions. And I have to say, personally, I'm very struck by that because there really isn't any evidence that any of these military interventions have brought stability to any of the countries where they have taken place. And so to see again and again, whether it was in Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, Iraq or others, military interventions being pursued was something that struck me. And then, of course, on the other side, I saw the international community focusing very much on another strategy, which, of course, I should be advocating for, and I do with passion, which are humanitarian forms of assistance in situations of armed conflict. And I think they are very necessary, and obviously uh, the persistence of conflict triggers deep responsibility to take humanitarian action. So my argument here is not to say humanitarian action is not needed, and I think this is, on the contrary, very necessary, But the reliance on military interventions that bring further instability and certainly don't resolve conflicts, and humanitarian action that doesn't address the root causes of conflict showed the limits of the different strategies that were pursued by the international community. And I would argue that one of the big problems in today's uh, forms of intervention is the great weakness of political strategies to actually resolve conflict. And here, I think nothing would be more important today, certainly in the Middle East, but also beyond, to see greater investment in political conflict resolution strategies, not conflict management. And for many of you who might be involved in or studying the different strategies that uh, international community and member states pursue, there's been so much over-reliance on conflict management. You can manage conflicts for decades, By the way, one example is if you manage conflicts and if you invest in over-relying conflict management, you get 70 years of UNRWA. And that cannot be the future for any society or for any uh, community on this planet. Now, of course, I often hear, as you must, that people are very skeptical about the possibility of seeing and achieving success in conflict resolution or in political forms, of mediation. I have to tell you, I have very little time for skepticism. So whenever I encounter it, and I do very frequently in meetings with ministers and diplomats, I always say that skepticism is one of the least sophisticated forms of surrender uh, to the notion that wars are inevitable. And we must absolutely avoid this. My second point is the need to reject anonymity in death and suffering. All of us use statistics for numbers of victims, numbers of displaced people, amount of aid distributed in a given context. And of course, I will also be using a few statistics this evening. I hope not to overwhelm you with them. But suffering, I have to say, and you know it well, is never anonymous. It is always deeply personal and individual. And I want to give you two examples of students from UNRWA schools who have gone through individual tragedies over the last few years. Batoul is a student, a Palestine refugee student from Syria, that I met for the first time two years ago when visiting the Ain al-Helwe camp in South Lebanon. And she and her story is that when her family and her left and tried to flee the camp that they were living in in Syria, because of the violence and the fighting, she was on her way to Lebanon, and they tried to reach Lebanon. She managed, in the end, with her mother. But on the way, she lost her father and one of her brothers. And when I met her, she was introduced to me by the school principal in the Unra school in the Ain al camp, and she was among the highest-performing students in that school. And there really isn't, and the school principal said to me, I can't explain to you how out of the trauma that Batul has gone through, she has been able... Uh, to develop such strength, courage, and determination in her studies. Another story is of uh, Ahed, who is another one of our students in Gaza, and whom I met when I handed over to her uh, a a series. There was an event in Gaza where I handed over certificates to high-performing students. My colleagues warned me that the first student that would come up to the podium had a very important story to tell, she had recovered from a seven-month-long coma, which she endured when her home in Gaza was hit by an airstrike during the 2014 war. The home was destroyed. Her, you know, She was brought to the hospital was seven months in the coma, and when she woke up, the doctors told her that her mother and one of her brothers had not survived the strike. And she was again one of the high-performing students in the schools. I tell you the story about the two sides of suffering but also strength because that is my experience in war zones. And it is very important that we see this individual dimension of both suffering but that we also avoid the endless characterization of people as victims because that is the very thing that prevents us very often from recognizing their humanity and also their potential. And this is something that I feel very strongly about. The third point I wanted to mention in introduction is the need for us, and I think that's very much in relation to the theme that you highlighted for today, Chitin, which is the need for a robust defense by all of us of the fundamental values and norms of international law. Over the past 15 years, we have all seen, and I've certainly witnessed very closely, key frameworks of international law that have come under assault. <laughs> Post 9-11, I witnessed this very closely with the Geneva Conventions, the heart of the international humanitarian law treaties that regulate the behavior in armed conflicts and that impose rules on parties to conflicts. In the immediate aftermath of September 11, of the September 11 attacks, there was a narrative that developed in academic circles, in political circles, sometimes in media, that suggested that simply the Geneva Conventions were no longer relevant to today's armed conflicts. And one of the quotes from the time was that the negotiators of the Geneva Conventions, who had sat together in 1949 to bring about and to agree on these fundamental rules applicable in armed conflict, had, and I quote, not anticipated a world in which Al-Qaeda would be the, the new norm. Well, that was certainly factually correct, that people in 1949 had not anticipated the world with Al-Qaeda. But it's not a very interesting point, because they had actually just survived the greatest calamity that mankind had ever, in, and in this particular case, I think we can underline mankind, had ever inflicted on humanity, which was the Second World War. So, they had these negotiators survived everything from Coventry to Dresden, from the Holocaust to Hiroshima. They needed no additional imagination of the horrors that humanity can inflict on humanity. And therefore, what we had with the Geneva Conventions and what they produced was a minimal but vital legacy of World War II. And this is something we need to protect with every of our energy and determination, and this applies, of course, also to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It applies also to the 1951 Refugee Convention and international customary law relevant to refugees. And all of these have been under attack in one form or another in recent years, and we must robustly stand in defense of them. Standing in defense of these values and norms is not done by simply reciting their articles. This is done by carrying these vital frameworks into the fields themselves, sitting down with armed groups, facing the parties that violate these conventions and engaging in open dialogue with them, again, in the field or in international fora. Now, this brings me to the situation of Palestine refugees and to UNRWA. As you're familiar, UNRWA was established in late 1949 following the forced displacement or movement of populations and of Palestine refugees, of Palestinians, following the creation of the State of Israel. And they were displaced and fled into what is today uh, the five regions where UNRWA operates, West Bank, including East Jerusalem, Gaza, Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon. Originally, 700,000 Palestinians were driven from their homes, Today we have 5.3 million Palestine refugees, so essentially the equivalent of the population of Scotland, of Norway, of Singapore, of Ireland, even larger than Ireland, that uh, live throughout this region and for whom UNRWA has direct responsibility. 1.2 million are in the Gaza Strip, close to uh, 800,000 in the West Bank, over 2.2 million in Jordan, just under half a million in Syria and about 280,000 in Lebanon. Now, what does it mean to be a Palestine refugee in the region today? Well, one way to think of what it means to have been uh, part of a refugee community for now up almost 70 years is to think about it in the following terms. If I were to ask you, or if you ask yourselves, what landmarks of human history you would name that come to your mind since 1950, you know, what would you list? Well, you might list the Korean War, 1950-53, you might list the beginning and the end of the Cold War, you might list desegregation in the United States, you might list the beginning and the end of apartheid in South Africa, or the the fall of the Berlin Wall and the beginning of the period that followed uh, the Cold War. You could list a number of things that are, of course, relevant to the respective countries that you are originally from. You can think of all the developments that your respective countries went through. And it is important to remember that over that entire period, whatever the list is that you come up with, in chronological terms, Palestine refugees have remained refugees over that period. And the biggest problem that I see today in the region is that there is simply no political or personal horizon for the Palestinians at large, but also for Palestine refugees in particular in this region. Think of it in these terms. Every young person below the age of 24 living in the West Bank or in Gaza and even beyond was born after the Oslo Peace Agreement. And that's the majority of the population today as far as Palestine refugees are concerned. Now what does that mean? That means that this is a generation that has grown up with its leadership and the world telling them that if they embraced moderation, if they supported political processes, if they believed in diplomacy, a solution would be found. And that solution has not been found. And their situation remains unresolved. Being a Palestine refugee in the West Bank today means having your entire life defined by parameters of occupation. This means facing the risk of forced displacement if you're in a Bedouin community, like in Khan el-Akhmar, close to Jerusalem. Uh, That means facing the risk of home demolitions. It means facing, on average, the risk of two daily military incursions by Israeli security forces into camp environments in the West Bank, that is the average, or in Ida Camp near Bethlehem, it means that residents are the most exposed to the use of tear gas anywhere in the world based on latest medical research by eminent specialists in that field. Being a Palestine refugee in the Gaza Strip means having your entire existence defined by the parameters of blockade and conflict. Repeated conflict is an experience that even young people have gone through, three conflicts for somebody who is now 12 or 13-year-old already, three conflicts in their young lives. It also means being exposed to widespread destruction, as during the last conflict in the Gaza Strip in 2014, loss of life, to give you one indication... Uh, 138 of UNRWA students did not return to the classrooms at the end of the last Gaza conflict. They were killed during the fighting. So that, of course, means that in every classroom you had very personal uh, impact for the fellow students and trauma to recover from. The extreme restrictions on freedom of movement are also, of course, a reality in the Gaza Strip. We have currently 270,000 students in our schools in the Gaza Strip alone, and of those, over 90% have never left the Gaza Strip in their lives. Employment opportunities extremely restricted. 65% of youth will never find a job under the present circumstances in Gaza, which is a world record and something to think about very Seriously, in addition, of course, to what you're familiar with, which are the restrictions on supply of energy, uh, electricity, and of water. The most serious concern right now in the Gaza Strip, in addition to these parameters, is actually the cumulative effect of all of this. You can map out physically, I could have brought photographs today, of certain neighborhoods in the Gaza Strip before the war, during the war and after the war. So we could have looked at those neighborhoods that were damaged or destroyed as a result of the fighting and which, of the ones, which ones have been rebuilt partly or entirely since the end of the war. And actually quite a lot has gone on in terms of reconstruction there. So physically you can But what you cannot show on photographs is the psychological impact of war on people, the way it affects people and in particular young children. We have in every one of our schools today counselors to accompany the students because of the cumulative effect of these trauma and these, the way in which our health uh, chief in, in the Gaza Strip, who is a Palestine refugee herself, describes it. She says there's an epidemic deterioration of psychosocial conditions currently in the Gaza Strip. And that's a liability for everybody's dignity and everybody's stability and security in the region. Being a Palestine refugee in Syria means that you're part of another generation of Palestinians and of Palestine refugees facing the trauma of displacement. And I think this is a very important point because in Syria, of course, everyone is exposed to great risk, to loss, to destruction, to fear. But in the Palestinian community, this is compounded by the fact that that this is an experience that the community has gone through already in the past. So it's another generation, as I said, that is experiencing the loss of homes, of livelihoods, of jobs, of businesses, of relatives, friends, and neighbors, and that sits very deeply in the community. Of the 560,000 Palestine refugees that were in Syria before the war, about 120,000 have fled the country altogether. They have gone to um, Lebanon, to Jordan, where we also provide assistance to them. Some have gone to Turkey, to Egypt. But several tens of thousands joined the millions of Syrians or the hundreds of thousands of Syrians that fled to Europe in 2015. So you also have significant numbers of Palestinians on that occasion that joined, and so it's to be understood in the European context that there were also people who arrived from the community that we served. Of the remaining 440,000 Palestine refugees in Syria, over 65 percent are internally displaced. So you can imagine the upheaval, the concerns and the questions that are often addressed to me my, during my visits to Syria about, is there a prospect for us to return to the camps at the end of this war, or will we again face the lack of prospects and opportunities in the future? And being a Palestine refugee in Lebanon and Jordan means facing diverse forms of exclusion. In Lebanon, it's very strongly related to the lack of right to employment and to living in overcrowded, densely populated camp environments. In Jordan, it is more to do with the economic and social opportunities that are often limited and the rights of some parts of the communities that are also challenged in Jordan. Now, coming to UNRWA, it is true here is a unique organization that was created very early on after the creation of the United Nations itself. 1945, United Nations. 1949, UNRWA. And we were created specifically and tasked directly by the UN General Assembly to carry out and to support Palestine refugees, until a just and lasting solution would be found to their plight. And of course, it was never the idea that we would be in existence for as long as we have been, which is now gradually approaching 70 years. Our ongoing existence is both a reminder of what you can do to serve and support long-term and protracted refugee communities, that's the positive side of it, but we have to be honest that our continued existence is also a daily reminder of the failure of political action to bring about a solution to this protracted and highly polarized conflict. Now, just in describing the work that we do, I want to say that I think even some of our closest partners, and there are many generous partners and donors that support UNRWA's work, but even our closest partners underestimate the extent of our contribution to human development in the Middle East. And I say it very humbly, but also because it's very important to give credit and recognition to the generations of staff members who have invested in this. What I mean by this is, for example, that we have had over 2 million Palestinians graduating from UNRWA schools since the 1950s. That's a very significant contribution to the preservation of skills and opportunities. And we are, in that sense, a bit different from other humanitarian organizations, including the one that I worked for before joining UNRWA, which is the International Committee of the Red Cross, in the sense that most organizations focus on the emergency delivery, the response to needs. UNRWA is also a quasi-state-like service provider in key areas such as education, healthcare relief in social services and other forms of intervention. Now, my biggest discovery when I joined UNRWA is the work that this organization does in terms of education. Why is it such a discovery? Because most humanitarian organizations approach, and I think it's very necessary and it's very justified, approach an individual from the perspective of being a victim of either an injustice, uh, an act of violence, or an act of abuse, or form of abuse. When you invest in education, you add to that another dimension. And that is that you see the person as a potential actor of his or her own destiny. And by investing in the development of skills and capabilities, you don't look at the person only as a recipient of aid. You give something more. And that is a formidable discovery for me. And really, I can say quite openly, and also very simply quoting, Gordon Brown, who says in international panels, where we are sometimes together, that UNRWA is the single largest provider of actual education services across the entire UN system. Of course, people are more familiar with UNICEF and with UNESCO, but none of these two sister organizations are actual providers of education. They distribute material, they work on policies with governments. We have 22,000 teachers in 700 schools for half a million students across the Middle East. In that sense, we are part of the institutional landscape of the Middle East and a very engaged actor in that, focused on the development of skills, the preservation of opportunities, and the focus on human rights education and youth participation. Very happy to expand on some of these topics uh, during our debate later. In healthcare, we have. Uh, we provide 34,000 consultations daily through our 140 healthcare centers and also have dispersed since 1991 just under half a billion loans, the equivalent of half a billion US dollars in loans to people to start businesses and invest in people through microcredit. We are also an active provider of emergency response for millions of Palestine refugees, in particular in Gaza and in Syria. I wanted to list some of the challenges that we face in carrying out this work. And the first challenge is a challenge that is traditional for humanitarian organizations in conflict zones, which is a question of access and security. Now, one of the great assets of UNRWA is that we have staff that are present throughout the region. UNRWA employs 30,000 people and has... 98% of them are Palestine refugees themselves. So I have colleagues right now in Aleppo, and I went to Aleppo to thank them in March for the extraordinary work that the 239 UNRWA staff have carried out because they've kept all of our schools and clinics open throughout the entire conflict without interruption. It takes a lot of courage to do that. And the same was true during the Gaza conflict in 2014. But we've also paid a very high price for that. We lost 11 colleagues during the 50-day war in 2014. We've lost 20 colleagues in Syria since the beginning of the conflict, and we have 25 who are missing. And having worked with the International Red Cross for 20 years in war zones, I can tell you that's an extremely high price uh, to pay. And nobody should take for granted that UNRWA staff can continue day after day, week after week, month after month, to take that level of risk to continue to uphold not only the importance of the mandate, but in particular the rights of Palestine refugees and addressing their needs. The second big challenge we face is that we operate not only in dangerous environments, but in highly polarized environments. Needless to say to you that we operate with the issue of Israel and Palestine, in one of the most emotionally charged contexts anywhere on the planet, whatever we say or don't say, do or don't do, is heavily scrutinized, is followed and assessed. And our ability to maintain the neutrality of the work of the organization is one of the fundamental principles that we need to uphold. As I always say, we seek to uphold it not because we are born neutral, We actually have feelings that are very strong about issues related to injustice or the violation of humanitarian or human rights law. But because neutrality is what enables you, on the one hand, to have access to populations in very difficult conflict environments by not choosing a side. And on the same time, it is what we need to preserve and protect the integrity and the reputation of the organization. Let me give you an example. On two occasions this year we discovered during repair works in our schools, in two of our schools in the Gaza Strip, tunnels that had been built by Hamas below our schools. So it is very clear, whatever affects or threatens the security of students or of staff or threatens the integrity and reputation of our organization, we will mention, and we did, denounce it unreservedly and ensure and work towards the avoidance of repetition of such situations. Now that, in a conflict zone, is easier said than done, but we were very clear in the positions that we took this year, and would any other party interfere, and would that be any others, including Israel, we would also take these positions, as we did during the 2014 war, when some of our schools were hit by artillery fire, from the Israeli security forces. And in those cases where we were able to establish uh, that there was responsibility by the IDF, we also publicly condemned this. This is a measure of what we need to do to preserve the respect and integrity of the organization. The other big challenge, and I don't want to spend too much time on that because it's not the one that will you know, preoccupy us tonight, the most, it worries me on a daily basis, which is of course the funding challenges that we face. And the issue here is not to speak about the money, but the ability to keep the schools open, the ones that I was referring to, this essential investment in the preservation of skills and of capabilities among the Palestine refugee community. When education is at risk, the Palestine refugee community is extremely worried Gets very unstable. In 2015, we had to we came very close to postponing the beginning of the school year because of a funding shortfall. The reactions were very strong in the community. They were also very strong among host countries, Jordan, in Palestine, and Lebanon. In particular, the reactions were very very strong. This gives you a sense of the issues we're dealing with, and I'm of course very happy to take questions that you may have on some of these aspects as we go further. I would just like to end my opening remarks with a final thought and a couple of, and, and an additional story. The final thought is that, of course, I think I've given you a sense that the community of the Palestine refugees throughout the Near East is extremely deeply marked and affected by what I called earlier the lack of horizon. It also has immense inner strength, and courage, but I really cannot reconcile myself with what I sometimes hear as being formulated like expressions of admiration for the resilience of Palestine refugees. There's no doubt that Palestine refugees are a resilient community, but it isn't enough for a world that is doing very little to resolve the problem in political terms to simply admire people's resilience. Resilience is something that we all have to deal with the inevitable traumas of like, like losing a parent or dealing with a, an unexpected uh, disaster. But there's nothing inevitable about the situation of Palestine refugees. It is an issue that can be addressed politically, can be resolved through a negotiation. And so to simply hide behind inaction and admire somebody else's resilience in a situation of injustice, is something that I find unacceptable. What is more important is to act for the respect of rights and for a solution to be found. Now, it is also very important to continue to recognize and to act more decisively to recognize the humanity in Palestine refugee youth. And I've spoken a lot about youth in the work that we do through education. I took two of our students to the General Assembly this year when I went to to take part in the General Assembly of the United Nations. And there was a special meeting on UNRWA. And we had a 13-year-old student from Gaza, Karim, and a 16-year-old Palestine refugee student from Jordan, Rahaf, join us. And they were very powerful in what they said. And one of the things that Rahaf pointed out, she said, we are victims of an historic injustice and we know it. We are refugees and we know it. But we want the world to not see us only as that. We want the world to recognize us for our skills, our capabilities, our determination to contribute, our our motivation to become involved, to participate and to engage and to somehow be citizens of the world. And so I want to end with the story of another element that touched me very much in my years of working in the context of UNRWA, and that is related to a notebook that I have carried with me, and some of you may have um, heard me refer to this uh, in separate conversations, but it means a great deal to me. This is a notebook from one of our students. Her name is Rua Hadeh. She was 13 when we found the notebook in a destroyed UNRWA school in the Gaza conflict in 2014. So I was visiting that school. The, the war was still going on. And I was there with my colleague, Muhammad Al-Aidi, who is the chief officer for the region of Khan Yunis. And as we were walking through the school, we saw the notebook and picked it up in, in the rubble and Muhammad started to, to look at it and he saw, of course, it's a, it's a classic poetry book of a young female student. And we looked through the pages and at one point he came to this page which has a poem in it which refers to hope. And in it, what Ruha wrote down is that hope is a friend who never betrays you. May go away for a while, but always comes back. And that happiness is something that you should not be looking for in the neighbor's garden. You should cherish in your own garden. Now, at the time, we had no idea whether Ruah was alive or not. But I said to Muhammad, we will rebuild this school. And if Ruah does survive the war, we want her to come and to recite that poem during the inauguration of the school. Thankfully, she and her parents survived the war. She came to the inauguration in April 2015, She recited the poem, and I then handed the notebook back to her, but she wanted me to keep it. And so I promised her, because she is among the thousands and thousands of students in Gaza that have never left the Gaza Strip, I promised her that her story will accompany me on all of my travel around the world, and I believe that that is the best tribute I can give to this important, dynamic, and courageous community. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much indeed for for a very powerful and moving and enlightening lecture. Thank you very much, Pierre. Now we have uh, some time for questions, and I know many people will have questions for our speaker. So I'll take questions in groups of three, uh, perhaps more. We'll see how we go, and I'd like maximum participation. From I know there are a lot of students here. I'd like to hear from you, uh, and so if there are more questions, we'll see how we go in terms of time but I'd like as much participation from the audience as we can manage in the time that we have. Also, you'll see our really wonderful LSE stewards. Sometimes they're referred to as stewards. I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> LSE stewards uh, with the red T-shirts who come with a microphone to those who've raised their hands. And so please wait until they're with you and are uh, holding the microphone in front of your face before you ask a question. And um, please do that because everybody in the audience can then hear what you have to say. And I know this can cause a short delay, but please be patient. Also, when you ask your question, can I ask you to state your name and uh, your organization or your affiliation, please? And can I please request we don't have any long statements or, uh, worse, long speeches? Uh, A good rule of thumb that I always use is that your question should be much shorter in time than the answer you expect. Okay, thank you. So um, I'll keep a lookout for who would like to go first.
1: This gentleman at the... Oh, right
0: to the very back, yes. So that's going to, in one, we'll run uphill.
2: <laughs> we have very fit stewards. Thank you. LC. Get the ball rolling, um, Pierre. Wonderful talk. Really, really enjoyed it. And uh, I must say, what a worthy um, thing it is that you do. Um, I can't argue with anything that you say. And I suppose you must have had many conversations in amongst your uh, peers about geopolitics. Things like uh, in interest groups, like the arms industry. So how can we really expect with hope and goodwill? Sorry, my name's Luke Howell. Um, I am involved with the Palestine Return Centre Parliament um, Committee. Uh, so how can we, with good hope and room for of nice people, just hope this will change when we have really huge interests of people You know, let's take the situation in Saudi, for example, where, you know, what on earth, really? How can anyone understand what's going on? But one suspects with all war, you only have to go back to the Second World War and the First World War that you mentioned. We all know who gained massively. That was the banks, the arms industry. So that's my question. Okay,
0: thank you. And uh, I saw another hand. No, is that our only question for this evening? Oh, just here at the front. Sorry, you have to run all the way down now.
3: Back. Um, my name is Nick. I'm a graduate student from uh, human rights um, I would say human rights centre uh, my question to you is that uh, what would be the best possible world for Palestinian refugees in your opinion
0: so in the best possible
1: world, world. world. yes
0: Interesting, very interesting, sharp, penetrating question. And we have a question just to the front here. Hi, my name is Nick. Um, I'm an undergraduate English student. Uh, I just wanted to ask, as uh, the plight of the Palestinians um, becomes something which doesn't necessarily have a foreseeable end to it, uh, does the role that UNRWA has to play uh, change as uh, initially being a a relief agency to something more long-term and more sustainable, And um, will politics eventually play a role in that because you talk about conflict management as opposed to putting an end to something like this? Uh, Is that a relevant point for an Iran? Excellent question. Thank you. And I think we'll just take one more question at the front.
4: Hi, I'm Dennis Curry. I'm a UN staffer myself. I work with the UNDP. Um, And my question was about uh, the UN coherence in response to uh, human rights issues, and we know recently, most particularly in Myanmar, there's been large questions about that, and previously in Sri Lanka. So I wondered if uh, if you had any commentary about uh, the coherence of the UN response in terms of human rights in the in the situation of the Palestinian refugees and um, the effectiveness of of the human rights up front initiative and and how that is playing out in that in that context. Thank
0: you. Okay, and I think we can probably take one more question right from the very front.
4: Frank Judd, Judd, former governor and emeritus governor of NSC. I found your address very powerful. The last time I was myself in West Bank, I was so struck by the cheerfulness of so many people that I said to them, How is it that amongst all this oppression, daily humiliation, and all the problems that confront you, you remain cheerful? The answer came very clearly. Oh, they said, because we're certain the future is ours. Now, the question I ask in that context is how long have we got before this inevitably – and you say war is not inevitable – but in which we actually make the inevitability of an explosion with dire consequences for the whole region inevitable. And may I just tag on to that my particular anxiety about the regular arrest of children by the Israeli army, taking them to detention very often against the Geneva Convention in Israel, and the treatment of these children when they are arrested, how is that building a future of hope for conflict resolution? Surely it is just investing in alienation.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. I know there's a lot of questions, but Pierre, don't worry, I have a track, I've kept track of them all. Uh, some of them overlap very massively,
1: so. Thank you. Thanks to, to all and Luc where with the interest groups and, and how we deal with... Well, it is absolutely clear that in every conflict zone you have multiple interest groups, some political, some economic weapons and, and others. And I think the reason why I feel it is so important not to give in to despair in relation to some of those trends and interests, is when I see, for example, what mobilization led to uh, the Ottawa Treaty on the ban of landmines and the ability to actually influence the, and to put weapons that have been you know, used and that have been used indiscriminately for, for decades that suddenly were uh, banned in their use. Now we know there, some people will violate rules that have been put, but there was a a widespread mobilization, civil society, states, international organization. The same happened when the process was led to the ban on cluster munitions. So I think the, the, the thing that we need to stay very strong on is there will always be interests, there will always be people who will benefit from conflict, and then there will be part of the world that will mobilize against such trends. And here we cannot surrender, we cannot give up to you know, and feel depressed, because when you see the realities that are created in conflict zone by these weapons and by some of these interests, we need to stand firm, whether we believe in the action of the United Nations with all of its strengths and weaknesses, whether we believe in the mobilization of civil society and having individuals connect with all the instruments that we have available today for interest groups, different interest groups, positive human rights-related interest groups that can mobilize and get... I think today we probably have, we live in a time where the ability to mobilize around these issues is available to all of us as individuals, as groups, as communities, and we can even do it transnationally. So there is really no excuse to sit back and say, and certainly we should not allow you know, what looks inevitable to just continue because it's always been like that. And so I think, uh, you know, I take your point as, as actually something where we should be encouraged to do more, to continue to raise issues, and in particular, as I said, to talk about the actual consequences. You know, we're not talking about issues, we're not in a science lab where we're testing things. Maybe it explodes, maybe it doesn't explode. Everything that I'm talking about has real implications. Let me give you an example. There's currently a big focus on Palestinian reconciliation between Fatah and Hamas and all the things that are happening. So, what I, of course, hear a lot in the international community is people say, oh, well... We've, we've been there before, the Palestinians. Let's wait and see. Let's not commit right now. But again, there's nothing theoretical about this exercise. If in six months we would meet again and see that this reconciliation has failed, we should at least not say it has failed because we failed to support it sufficiently. We failed to believe that it was important enough because the consequences in the West Bank and in Gaza will be you know, not theoretical. They will be real for people who struggle every day to try and preserve a minimum of dignity and respect for their rights. So let us think that there are interest groups, but maybe we can offer you know, a counter-narrative from a different perspective and create interest groups of our own around human rights and the respect of human dignity. What would be the best possible world for, for Palestine refugees? It's a really it's a, it's a challenging question because it's actually... Um, one that, you know, students, uh, Palestinian students should link up with you, um, hopefully one day directly face-to-face, but if not through uh, video conferencing to, to discuss. But I think the one thing I can say with certainty is that the best possible world for Palestine refugees, and really I say this being very proud of the work we do, is not another 70 years of UNRWA, for sure. But it's the dignity of having a state of one's own that one can contribute to building in full respect and security with the neighborhood and in learning to interact and to deal with these things and to contribute to one's own process of development. Because as much as I know from many Palestinians and even young Palestinians that there is recognition and respect for the role that UNRWA plays in providing these key services, in particular education and healthcare, but also others, I also know deep down, because I think if it, how would I react myself? There can only be also an ambivalent feeling about the daily reminder that UNRWA still needs to be there in view of the fact that no political solution has been found. And that is a way of saying the world hasn't lived up to its commitment to resolving this. So I think the best possible world is one in which Palestinians can contribute to establishing and building their own state have their own destiny in their own hands and then develop relations in the neighborhood that are based on respect, recognition of everybody's humanity in the region. Um, the question about uh, the no foreseeable future and does that impact the way in which UNRWA evolves over time is actually it's a very powerful and important question. And in a way, we've been confronted with that over time already in many forms because the very original mandate that was given to the organization was really to deal with relief and avoid starvation among the Palestine refugee community in the first sort of couple of years and everything. And then it gradually shifted to more human development focus. And that's because it became longer term. And that was not easy, of course, for the refugee community itself. You know, there were very emotional times where for example, UNRWA gradually shifted from accommodating Palestine refugees in tents to providing shelter in hard form, concrete buildings, because the refugee community for a while resisted that because there was a sense of permanence that was being introduced. Not not that it was nice to live in tents, but certainly the fact of moving into hard shelter was a sign that this was going to last for much longer than had originally been foreseen. And so all of these things are something that has to be accompanied also very carefully. But I think now we have to recognize that after so many years, there are certain things that cannot just be done by repeating the traditional emergency gestures. And that's why I think working on education, but in particular, and you can relate to this, students who come out and graduate from UNRWA schools at the age of 16 and then sort of move into either higher education in the environments that they live in or look for Um, professional training, we also offer that partly in technical vocational training centers or look for scholarships abroad, are in a very delicate phase because they are looking for ways to translate what they have learned in the UNRWA school environment into something that is productive for themselves. Uh, You know all about that, so I don't need to brief you on that part. But the, the context in which this happens is defined by war, occupation, blockade, and that makes it extremely difficult to find a job, to find scholarships, to find a way to translate everything that has been learned into something. This is where really we need to work extremely hard, to improve the connection between our education work, the obtaining of scholarships, or the uh, ensuring the professional training, uh, preparing for actual employment opportunities and others. But you asked the specific question, should there be a role that evolves into a more political engagement? And I think... I presume, because one can never say what the future holds exactly, but I think probably we would robustly resist that temptation. First of all, because we have to recognize that's not our area of expertise. We were not mandated for that, but that's one thing. But it's not an area that we... What we can do, and there I believe we have to contribute, is on a daily basis, UNRWA is an organization that is faced with the human consequences of the unresolved political issue. And so I see it as my responsibility to take these consequences and to describe them in meetings with ministers, with diplomats, with you know, briefings in the General Assembly. And not, This is not an ideological issue. It's a very fundamental human issue. I have a responsibility to draw attention to the fact that, there, you know, one expression that you hear a lot about Israel and Palestine is the status quo. That's the kind of cozy expression behind which one hides one's unwillingness to act. Oh, it's a status quo. Things are much more acute in Yemen and in Syria, which no doubt if you count the casualties per day today, it's more acute in Syria or in Yemen. But static it is not. For nobody affected by occupation is it static. And, you know, you can relate to it. I was born in 1966. And, if, and I can describe to you, as you can... You know, everything that I did and where I lived and where I traveled to and where I studied and my first uh, professional experiences. And if I had been born in Jenin or in Hebron, I would have lived that entire period under occupation. That's what it means. Forget the ideological considerations that we may all have in our minds. That's the reality in human terms. That's my responsibility, to bring it and to say that political inaction is a very dangerous strategy because we may decide to close our eyes right now on Gaza, but beware of when we reopen them because nothing will have been static in the meantime. And I think that comes back uh, later to, to the, the, the other question that was raised about how does one... Well, maybe i just go straight to, to your question, Frank, about, you know, there's both the arrest of children you, you described, but also how does one keep hope? And what hope... You know, where is hope in that regard? And I think... Um, the point here to have in mind, yes, first of all, um, detention under the Geneva Convention is not foreseen outside of the occupied territory itself, so to detain in Israel is an, is an issue in and of itself. But the impact, of course, on children to have to go through detention and everything that that means is so deeply traumatic it would you know, merit a, um, a session of its own. But I want to come to the point on, on hope that you highlight. You know, one of the things that I was struck with when I went to my, on my first visit to uh, the Gaza Strip, I met, and that was just before the 2014 war, I met a group of uh, Palestinian business leaders in Gaza. And one of them described what was one of his biggest fears related to the situation. He was about probably just 55, 56 years old. And he started the conversation in an unusual way. He said, Commissioner General, I am a good man. Which I thought that's a good way to start the conversation. But then he added, our children are not as good as we are. And that's very unusual to hear. And then he explained. He said, you know, I grew up and was in contact with Israelis. I know many Israelis personally. I worked in Israeli companies. I learned many, and I'm quoting him here, really literally, I learned many of my skills, in Israeli companies. And even today, he said, I can pick up the phone, and call Israelis, that I know personally, and I can discuss issues, and we may disagree, on many things, but I can say in all honesty, and I'm still quoting, verbatim, I can say in all honesty, that I am still able, to take some of the Israeli concerns, into consideration, despite everything that I live. But our children, he said, have never seen an Israeli in their life. Because the separation is now so complete. And the same is true, because I have discussed it with Israelis, for Israeli youth. There simply isn't any more a contact with the Palestinian reality unless you see a Palestinian from the West Bank working somewhere on a building site in Tel Aviv or somewhere, or you're actually deployed as a security force in the West Bank, and then see Palestinians at the checkpoint or at the crossing points. So what basis are we allowing to develop here in terms of future coexistence? Because however we see the situation, a time will come where dialogue will be required, and I don't need to say it here with the experience of Northern Ireland, a time will be required where people will have to sit down and find a solution. And this... Separate reality, these separate realities, are simply not providing the basis for that in, in the future. The coherence of the U.N. response on, on human rights well, I think, again, uh, we could do a whole program on that. I think there is very serious work to be done to improve. I think there is genuine effort out of the initiative that you mentioned, which is the human rights up front. But you know, as always, then comes the test of reality. And so you know if it 's about, for example, um, reviewing the behavior of armed forces in relation to children in armed conflict, there wasn 't an ability to produce an outcome on that in in the context or and so it 's clear that the u n will always be observed, and I think at times critically for the strength and the clarity of its statements, its messages, and also its efforts about human rights in the context. I thought that the Secretary General's visit at the end of the month of August was actually a good visit. He had some very clear messages on settlements for example. He had also clear messages on violence and uh, you know, firing of rockets or others out of Gaza but in particular he also had a very strong message about the necessity to preserve the basis for the two state solution saying that there really wasn't an alternative and that's of course something that is debated in many circles but so I think this will always be a very big test. And we know, because of the combination of different interests in the region, there can be a lot of pressures there. But I think, um, you know, at least there is an attempt to streamline it and to improve the alignment between New York and the field, I guess, on some of those things.
0: Okay, Thank you very much, Pierre, and sorry for the, having to speak for so long with those number of questions. We'll take a shorter, <laughs> shorter number of questions. So, can we have... A, oh forest of arms. So right at the very back, the lady, right at the very back, if you could please say your name and and who you are and ask your question, please. Yep.
5: Okay. Uh, my name is Farah. I'm a, a master's student here at the Women Peace Security Program. Um, and My question, I appreciate the fact that you mentioned the example of Batul, the Palestinian Syrian, because there are many examples where, on one hand, Palestinian Syrians are being denied the help of UNHCR, um, and then on the other hand, they're stuck because UNRWA is ill-equipped in countries in the region. So could you speak more about the coordination between UN agencies or the lack thereof? And also, to use your word, um, is UNRWA able to mobilize, uh, given that under Obama's administration, the largest uh, foreign aid package in history was given to Israel, and then the US continues to also be the number one donor to UNRWA. So, two questions, sorry,
0: but. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Uh, right to the very front. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Actually, yeah, sorry. Do you want to ask your question while this uh, the steward is coming down? Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Uh burcu uh, LLM student from King's College London I would like to ask a question Could about you speak up uh, a bit, please I would like to ask a question about the situation of Palestinian refugees under Geneva Convention 1951 uh, so there, um, in the article 1d of the Geneva Convention 1951 it brings an um, non applicability clause and um, uh, the um the convention is not applicable for people who who seek protection from uh, UN agencies other than UNHCR, so ANVRA in this case. And uh, if this protection ceases ceases to exist, if this protection has ceased, then uh, they become ipso facto refugees. Uh, And um, you have already mentioned about the... um, anra's uh, effort to uh, provide education uh, and i don't know how um, i don't know the role of UNRWA, UNRWA in uh, providing security or maintaining security of uh, palestinians so i was i just want to ask um, whether we can uh, can we think a situation a case where a, a palestinian um, is registered with UNRWA in a place where ANWRA is operating, but actually the protection is not meaningful or um, a refugee is, um, uh, p- there is no um, uh, a, r- th- 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 a case that w- where there would be a need for that person to flee uh, another country and seek protection under Geneva Convention nineteen fifty
0: one. Thank you, is, is that a dissertation topic? <laughs> 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 Thank you, <laughs> thank you. Um, there were two people just here, so the lady just on at the end and the man behind you. If you could just raise your arms a bit higher.
5: Hello. Is, am I Gosh. Me, eh?
0: Thank you. Okay. Hi, my uh, name is Fahana. Um, oh. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was, uh, you were in close right, competition. Okay, so yeah, <laughs> you're fine. Yeah.
5: Sorry. Okay. So go ahead, Farhana. Sorry. Um, um, I, my question is on the inclusion of women in peace and conflict talks. There's been quite a lot of research done around by the UN, I think, mostly, about how the inclusion of women in peace talks and post-conflict talks and during conflict talks has been quite effective in um, reducing conflict and actually coming to some sort of a uh, resolution, in a sense. Um, so is there something you are doing through education and the through the education pro programs UNRWA does to promote the um, women or the young girls to sort of pursue that line of work? Um, and my second question is, just following up from this chap's question, about um, the youth and the how they are being imprisoned and put in detention for such minor acts such as throwing stones. Is there a way that education can sort of educate the, young, the youth about how this is illegal and is, can you sort of create a movement through through that to sort of address unlawful detention sort of thing.
0: Okay, I'm going to leave it at that for the moment for Pierre. I know you two have been waiting for a while. next round will be yours.
1: Okay. Thank you, Pierre. So um, for Palestine refugees in, in Syria, when you asked about the, the coordination uh, between... UN agencies, and, um, and in particular, what I understood is for those who flee um, the country. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it, it partly overlaps with the question of the 1951 uh, convention, so I'll, I'll sort of merge those parts, and I'll come back to the U.S. part of your question. I mean, the way in which it works is that the mandate that was given to UNRWA in terms of ...response to needs of Palestine refugees focuses and is exclusively focused on the West Bank, Gaza, Syria, Jordan and Lebanon. So if a Palestine refugee flees from Syria and arrives in Lebanon, this person is integrated into the UNRWA service delivery. All children have access to our uh, schools in Lebanon or in Jordan, the health care provision or any other form of support. If a person flees to Turkey we do not operate in Turkey. And that's when, you know, Article 1D and others then uh, fall into place in sort of saying that UNHCR then has the responsibility for further care and integrating Palestine refugee into their response, whether that's from an assistance side, which often, of course, states are also involved in, but also in particular from the protection side of the mandate. And here we have actually had to, because this was not an experience with UNHCR for a long time, Because UNHCR actually was not very present in the Middle East until sort of the combination of the wars between Iraq and Syria. That's when the UNHCR role in the Middle East actually expanded and took on a greater dimension because they focus on Syrian refugees so strongly, which we do not. But in countries where Palestine refugees arrive such as, in you know, principle, every other country than the regions that I've referred to as being UNRWA mandate, UNHCR has then the direct responsibility. So we discuss with them uh, their assessments of uh, where Palestine refugees have arrived, what their situation are, and try to follow up. We try to monitor and have an understanding of currently, for example, how many countries around the world Palestine refugees have arrived in from Syria. So, for example, there are, uh, Palestine refugees have arrived in Laos, others have arrived in Brazil, most of them, of course, now in the meantime in Europe, and others uh, very much also in, in the region. So there's, this is the coordination with UNHCR in particular, and that's how it's split up. So again, to come back to your point about if a, a Palestine refugee would flee a country or a context where UNRWA has the responsibility and then go into one where we don't work, in principle that triggers the response and engagement by UNHCR. Now, the challenge from the perspective of the Palestine refugee himself or herself, is that in the cases and in the context where UNRWA has the direct mandate, Palestine refugees have one agency that is there designed to support them exclusively. So there's a very, I want to say, intimate connection um, to UNRWA. And when a Palestine refugee arrives in a country where we don't work, it is... You know, it's, it's a challenge for them to orient themselves, to find the anchor, the link to UNHCR, and to ensure that while UNHCR is taking care of hundreds of thousands, if not more, Syrians, the Palestinians are not forgotten in the middle of all this. And this is where we work to, together with UNHCR to try and avoid uh, such situations. So I hope I address the coordination and the uh, Article 1D Uh, With that uh, response, and happy to follow up if you need more material for whether that was a a (laughs) dissertation or not. (laughs) Happy, don't uh, have many, many colleagues here will be very willing to provide more information. Coming back to the US, look, let's be very honest it's always for every humanitarian organization a challenge, on the one hand, because we have. A remarkable support, as you indicated, from the U.S. And historically, the United States has been the single largest donor to to UNRWA. And, of course, in the region, it's not always necessarily perceived as a neutral actor and, therefore, in perception terms, that brings a number of issues with it. But, to be very frank, the way that I look at this is from a slightly different perspective. I look at it from the following perspective. UNRWA is not a self-declared actor. We were mandated by the General Assembly of the United Nations. And through this mandate, the member states of the General Assembly have committed to provide voluntary contributions to ensure that we can implement this mandate. And that's where the role is anchored. So I see the resources coming from member states of the General Assembly, and that gives us the strength and legitimacy to act. So I recognize you know, the, the dilemma that you're pointing to, but it is... An absolute necessity for us to mobilize as broad a basis of support as we can. And I've been pursuing that in a variety of countries. So we, we have very strong links into Gulf countries. We're trying to broaden them to BRICS countries to, to ensure that we have a basis that is as diverse and meaningful uh, as we can. And then um, there was the question on inclusion of women and the, what we do to empower. Yeah, and particularly young girls. And you know, it's impressive to see because if you if you just now for a second close your eyes and sort of think of all the images that come to your mind about, for example, the Gaza Strip, and you would you know list the actors that are involved there politically and militarily, and you would think of all the sort of uh, dramatic associations that come to mind of conflict and everything else. And then, and you're most welcome. We'll be happy to invite you to come to see the UNRWA schools, you would be amazed, as I was, by the strength of, in particular, the female students in our schools, and that's across all of our areas of operation. And we have, in that sense, the gender parity and equality in UNRWA schools has been achieved already many decades ago, including among staff. So we have you know, female school principals across all of our schools, female education specialists, the head of our... A health program in Gaza is, is, is a Palestine refugee woman. And so I think there's, as you know, we really do a lot. And I'm with this, the last thing I'll say is that we do everything we should be doing. There's a lot that we still need to improve on and learn from. But I'm very impressed uh, with the investment that is there for, for young women. The problem that we face is, of course, by the way, and that's true for every society. It's true in my own country, in Switzerland, where... You know, Switzerland was one of the countries that introduced vote for women the latest. So there's nothing that we should be, you know, bragging about very much. It was the, the, the right for women to vote in Switzerland goes back to 1971. That's like yesterday. Um, the last canton to introduce this was 1990. So if ever you hear a Swiss person lecture anybody else on women's rights, you know, just raise that point. <laughs> and uh, to add to that, that despite the fact that it's fully assured by our constitution, women still don't get equal pay in many companies in Switzerland. So let's just put it in the right context before we all go out and tell the rest of the world what they have to do. And um, The point I'm making with this is, of course, women and girls in in the UNRWA context, in Gaza, West Bank, but also are very much exposed to the types of risks, pressures, and threats that are compounded on young girls and women in situations of conflict. and That goes from everything from the risks of sexual abuse uh, against, uh, in particular, in overcrowded camps where you have uh, displacement and sort of the community protection mechanisms uh, collapse, all the way to the fact that young women who graduate from our schools are even less likely than young boys to find a job later on because of, you know, being built discrimination against women in the employment sector. Now, that is a thing, there we still have a very big task. That's, of course, not in our hands alone, but we absolutely want to ensure that in our schools and also in the student parliaments, so, for example, the president of the central student parliament of the Gaza Strip until the end of last year was a young 15-year-old girl, Razan, who was extremely forceful, so when I proposed that we increase, for example, the contacts between students across all of UNRWA fields. She said, Commissioner John, it sounds like a very good idea, but I have one condition. She said, we are not prepared to have these contacts via VC because we want to meet our brothers and sisters face to face. And so, you know, they are very committed and energetic students. And so I think there's a lot that we can build on. There's actually a very formidable capacity among our students but it's true that once they leave the direct school environment, that's something that has to be taken care of um, in greater detail.
0: Okay, I'm, I'm very conscious of time, and I, and I know that um, Pierre has been talking all day today, and uh, you know that's we're correct. very glad to have him here, and I know two people have been waiting, um, but I'm wondering if it's possible for you to, if Pierre is kind enough for you to take questions uh, from people later. I'm wondering also to invite you for, to hold regular office hours from next week <laughs> to help our students with their essays That's and nice. dissertations. Um, but, but I do think, because I've got a few other things to say, that uh, we, we should end now. We have uh, coming to the end and run out of time for questions. Before I give my formal thanks to Pierre, I'd like to tell you about just a few forthcoming LSE Human Rights events next term. And these include Samuel Moyne, speaking on human rights in the neoliberal maelstrom. So you have to come to that. That's on 7th of February. And an event with our very own Francesca Klug on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights at 70. Should we rejuvenate it or retire it? So that will be an interesting and provocative event. And then Rather Ivory speaking on 12th of February on the governance of transgression, which is about corruption and transnational criminal law. So we hope you can make some of these events. And if you'd like to be informed about other... LSE human rights events. You can sign up online to receive our electronic newsletter or follow us on Twitter. I think we're approaching 14,000 followers on Twitter. Please try and make that 15,000 before Christmas. I've been asked to, asked to tell you that. Um, we can't give you a gift prize if you do, but you might get a nice welcome tweet in return. And finally, can I thank Pierre Cranbull for coming to speak to us this evening?
1: Can I just um, say one one last word because we we talked about human rights the the whole evening, and you know many of you are engaged already or thinking about where you want to take the next phase of your engagement the one thing I just want to share one simple lesson, and I say it very humbly because we all learn different lessons in life, but having worked for twenty five years in conflict zones, the one question that has haunted me throughout that period is not why is the other person misbehaving why is the prison director torturing why is the checkpoint chief you know stealing beating up and others the question that has haunted me is if this context if this conflict were taking place in my own country who would i have been And I have to tell you that, of course, most of us would love to conclude that we would be the courageous human rights activist, that we would be the critical journalist denouncing the abuse, the corruption, the violations. But the most likely response to this is, especially in this case as a man, the most likely issue is that you end up being caught up in the conflict itself, drawn into by one militia, one party or the other, And when I looked at people caught up in conflict, I always asked myself this because I think the only honest answer I can give to that question is that I don't know. And it's not because I want to escape a difficult question, but because by answering that, I just want to be very honest with myself because there is no other test than if you're faced with the question itself. And the question can be, like I experienced with many families in Bosnia, for example, during the war, that a militia walks up and knocks on your door and gives you two minutes to decide whether you want to join them, but then have to shoot the neighbor because he's from another community as the first act of your allegiance to the group, and then you've crossed the threshold forever, or whether you have the moral strength to resist that and then are shot yourself with your family. You have two minutes to decide it, and I can assure you that we can only answer on the spur of the moment whether we would have the strength to preserve the values that we hold for certain and for dear. And so what I want to just give you with you on this is in the work that we do in human rights and in humanitarian environments, the key, in my experience, is not to judge the other. And that's a very difficult thing because I've sat in front of many prison directors trying to have access to the detainees and wondering... Why is this person in this position? But I understood I can better influence him if the approach that I take is not to judge but to recognize that under similar circumstances I could be that person. And the only way to preserve myself from ever being that person is to remain very alert, attentive, not to take anything for granted in life and to continue to be very determined on upholding the fundamental values that we think are important. Thank you so much. Thank you.